Good morning. What a pleasure to be with you this morning. You can take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We're actually going to be uh, looking uh, at the subject of that very song, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at, at the wise men or the magi. And uh, growing up, I was always, always confused by these gifts. No clue what frankincense was, no clue what myrrh was, was okay with the gold, uh, but just had no clue what they were. It reminded me, when I was a kid, I got a Christmas gift from, I think an aunt or a cousin or something, but you, I unwrapped the gift, and it was, it, was a, it was a box of crackers. And I was like, oh, yeah, great, thank you, thank you. You know, you do the fake, like, thank you. And I didn't realize until later they said, no, they put the actual gift inside the box of crackers and that there was actually more and then, you know, a little bit more excited to open the gift then. Um, and so, but that was my first time experiencing this idea that you would put a gift inside another box or a cracker box or something like that. And I think it was a shirt or something like that. But nonetheless, it was just kind of confusing. And these things could be kind of confusing as we look through the Christmas story. Um, but uh, Lord willing, this morning, just going to look at the Christmas story, give some context to this passage, and uh, kind of look at what's going on here in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 1. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Corey Tinboom was a Dutch Christian who aided in the, the hiding of Jews during the Holocaust. Some 800 Jews, they estimate, went through her house. After her operation was discovered, she was taken to a local penitentiary where she was uh, kept in a cell which was two steps wide and six steps deep. And she was kept there for several weeks before it was ti- finally time for her to have her first hearing with one of the German lieutenants there. Lieutenant brought her into his office there at the prison, and he began to question her about her operation. And of course, she was careful not to divulge much information about it. At the end of this, when he realized he wasn't going anywhere, he just saw, sat quietly. And Corey eventually spoke up, and she goes, she asked him, she says, do you want to know the truth? And he goes, well, of course I want to know the truth. 
And Corey would explain to him that there is a God who does not see this, this things the same way we do. And she would tell this man that, as a matter of fact, we wouldn't even know what God thinks unless he had written to us in a book. And she began to explain this book. There was no response from that lieutenant, and he took her back to her cell. The very next morning was another time with the same lieutenant where she had a hearing again. But instead of going to the office, they went out to the courtyard where it was nice and sunny. It was in the winter, but Corey got to enjoy the sun for the first time in months. The lieutenant began, he says, he says, I could not sleep last night thinking about that book where you read such different ideas. What else does it say in there? Corey paused out in the sunny courtyard and she says, she would say to him, it says that a light has come into the world so that we need no longer walk in darkness. Is there darkness in your life, Lieutenant? Lieutenant responded, there's great darkness. He says, I can't bear the work I do. He would go on to explain that his hometown was recently bombed and he says, I can't help but think and wonder if my wife and children are still alive. Corey responded and says, there is one who has them always in his sight, Lieutenant Brahms. Jesus is the light the Bible shows to me, a light that can shine even in such darkness as yours. And that was the end of the conversation. But I want to ask you the same question. Is there darkness in your life? Do you long for a light to pierce the darkness that's inside of you? Life is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Christmas should be a time of rejoicing because Jesus Christ came to give life. No matter how grievous your state may be, no matter how darkness your darkness may be right now in your heart, Jesus came to give light and to give life. No matter how broken your heart, no matter how broken your family, no matter how broken your life, no matter how broken your bank account, no matter how broken your marriage, no matter how uh, broken your attitude, broken whatever, Christmas is about Jesus Christ. And the question is, what will you do with Jesus Christ? And in Matthew chapter 2, what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at three responses to the birth of Jesus. Three responses to the birth of Jesus. But before we get into that, we're going to spend some time just giving some context around this Christmas story. Because if, if you know the Christmas story, uh, Matthew chapter 1 goes, uh, goes straight from this fulfilling of the prophet, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And Joseph woke from sleep and it kind of ends on Jesus being born. And then we get into the wise men. But if you remember, the very first visitors to baby Jesus were the shepherds. Were the shepherds. And if you remember, the reason why Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem was because they now, we know that there are about two other censuses sensei, uh, that took place during that time. Uh, and what it was is that you had to go to your hometown and you had to write down everybody that was in your household. So you, your wife, your kids, if you had any strangers with you, any slaves or anything like that, you wrote them all down. So everyone was registered. Now, the trip from Galilee down to Bethlehem was around 70 miles so Mary, being full-term pregnant, had to travel 70 miles uh, all the way down to be registered. And so if you also remember this story, there's this whole thing about the end. And I like Wyman gave us a Christmas quiz last week in ABF. And he asked us, what does the Bible say the innkeeper said to Mary and Joseph? Nothing. 
We don't know, right? We only, we, every time we see a kid's Christmas play, there's an innkeeper who's, but in the Bible, we don't, we don't know, keeper said, because that's not in there. But in Greek and Roman culture, so this wasn't a hotel. This was not a hotel. This wasn't like check-in, they give you a room key, you go, there's like air conditioning, continental breakfast, nice, all this stuff, nothing like that. There are two types of inn. One was a public inn, and what you would do is it was basically just this big, big walled-in area in the city, and it had a well. So you would go, and if there was room, you had to bring your own food, your own bedding, your own everything. Basically, what was there is provide just some sort of protection and also a place for you to water and rest your animals that were with you. Now, this is, this is most likely what they were looking for because there was another type of inn, and that might have been like an upper room in somebody's house where they would maybe rent it out. But if you know about traveling when, around, when everything's busy, you know, the good places get taken first. And so there was no private inn, there was no public inn, there was nothing for them. And so we know that she gave birth and laid baby Jesus in a manger. A manger is a feeding trough for animals. There's two places you might find a feeding trough or a manger. One would be the uh, poorer people would have two rooms in their house. One would be their main living area, and then you would step down into another area, and that would be where the animals were kept. And there's obviously a feeding trough there for, for poorer families. Another possibility is that many times they, they, they carve these sort of barns into the side of the mountain, and that's where feeding troughs would be. You don't know where Jesus was born, but most likely he may have even been born maybe a little bit outside the city in more of a cave, so to speak. But he was laid in the feeding trough. And like we said, the shepherds were the first visitors. Shepherds were an important part of daily life for the Jewish person, but they weren't like the most highly esteemed occupation. Um, they were always out with the sheep. Sheep were used in sacrifices, used for food and clothing. Uh, lots of prime grazing ground around Bethlehem. And so they would be responsible for working with the sheep day and night all year. And so they're kind of, you know, people who work with animals, um, you know, the, the smells and the joys of all that. But they weren't, they weren't very highly esteemed. Now just think about that if you're married. Now for you moms who've had babies and you've had visitors, normally the people you want visiting are like family. But just imagine Joseph showing up and saying, uh, honey. Uh, we've got visitors. Oh, great, bring them in. And, you know, and, then, and then here come several shepherds. This is like, these are like the guys that work at the city dump on the third shift. I mean, it's just not the people you're looking forward to seeing right when you have a baby. Please come in, hold my baby. But God is, God is showing us something here. We don't have time to look at that. We need to stick with our passage that we're working in. When we get to Matthew chapter 2, and this was probably some time after Jesus was born. Possibly even as much as two years old because we read later in the chapter that Herod would, would order the slaughter of all baby boys two years old and younger. So this could have been some time. So most likely uh, the Magi were not there when Jesus was born. We don't know much about them, but most likely they were pagan astro astrologers um, that dated back to the Babylonians. If you read through the book of Daniel, there might be some hints. As these might kind of come from the same magicians and wise men as we find in the book of Daniel, though we're not sure. 
but they were very powerful and very influential. As a matter of fact, in Esther chapter 1, verse 13, it says, The king said to the wise men who understood the times, it says, For it was custom of the king to speak to the ones who knew law and justice. So even in Esther chapter 1, verse 13, the king spoke to the wise men because the king even looked up to these wise men who were well-versed in law and justice. John MacArthur notes that during the reign of the Persians, one of the conditions to becoming a Persian king was that you actually had to be approved and anointed by the Magi, or these wise men. So they're a very high position, and they would not have traveled alone. It probably wasn't just three of them. They probably had a, a big escort of military with them. And so when they showed up to Bethlehem, or they show up in Jerusalem first. When they show up to Jerusalem, that's probably why Herod was troubled. He would have understood exactly who these wise men were, and it wouldn't have just been three of them. There probably was a whole, there was a whole army with them, so to speak. And he was troubled by it. Herod was a, Herod the Great, that is, was a Gentile-appointed king over Judea by the Roman Senate. And we're going to learn more about him in just a minute. But that kind of sets the stage. That, sets, that kind of sets the context to what we find in Matthew chapter 2. And now let's look at the three responses to baby Jesus being born. And these are the three responses you can have. Number one, first let's look at the wise men or the magi. The magi surrendered to the king. Now the birth of Jesus brought immediate influence on the world. Even though Jesus was just a baby, the world began to stir a little bit. A power and a presence was in the world that had never been before, in such a way as it had never been before. Men who were far off are now being brought near. These magi are seeing the star, and they're traveling this great distance, perhaps hundreds of miles. It was a way that was difficult and inconvenient, yet there was only one king to surrender to, and there was only one way to this king. A great illustration of this is in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus will say later in this, in this very gospel where he would tell people, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Great illustration of the wise men. There is one star to follow. There is one road to King Jesus, and the way was probably hard and inconvenient to get there. But it's strange to us, isn't it? Even when we consider the shepherds, it ought to be a little strange to us how God appoints his grace and what he'll do to save people and what he'll do in his grace to bring people to Jesus. This story is often so familiar to me, to us, that we often just lose the wonder of it. They're following this star, and we don't know what the, what the star is or what it looked like necessarily. Uh, my grandpa owned a... Uh, my, my grandpa started a, a sign business in Lincoln, Nebraska, where I grew up, and it was a neon sign company. It was called Lincoln Neon Sign Company, and he would make neon signs and repair neon signs, and he would do it all over Lincoln. Uh, one of the things he made probably 20, 30 years ago was um, he would bend his own glass and all this stuff, and he, he bent um, the glass and put in the, the neon gas in there. You add electricity, and on comes the neon sign, but he made a, he made a star, he would never decorate for Christmas. He had this bright blue neon star that sat in his window in his neighborhood and just lit the whole thing up. And, and that was his only Christmas decoration. 
That's probably the one thing of this Christmas story that, that maybe captures us the most. As a matter of fact, we even read that it was, it was the, when the wise men or these magi, when the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. There's something about this star. Now, it did not save them. It was miraculous, of course. There was nothing inherently spiritual or powerful about this star, but there was, there was something about it. There's something where we're just drawn to that sort of light. And it was leading them to King Jesus. This Christmas time, we remember that Jesus came to us. And it wasn't because he wanted to reward us. Like, I need to get down to earth right now and reward all those faithful people at Calvary Baptist Church. You know, that's, that's not what Jesus was thinking. He's like, oh, that's Zach Fisher guy. I better get down to earth because he needs to be rewarded for all the great things that he's done. That's not at all what was in his mind. It was to give himself as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. If we don't walk away from Christmas story with the great awareness of our own need for this King Jesus, then we've missed something. Let there not be one of us in here who thinks we had nothing to do with the coming of the Son of God, that our sin had nothing to do with the coming of the Son of God. He came because of our sin and because of our rebellion. That's why he came. He came to save us. He came because he loves us. And the wise men enter in, and I find this so interesting where it says when they, when they eventually go to Herod and then they, they find their way to Bethlehem, the star leads them uh, to the place where the baby was. And notice what it says here. And going into, verse 11, notice verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. It's just astounding. God with us is being held by his teenage mother. I'm not so sure there's another scene in all of scripture that is more pitiful and as beautiful as this. This infant savior with infinite power in the arms of his mother. Crying when hungry, being nursed, being held, being clothed, being bathed, and as Pastor Matt's story reminds us, getting a diaper change. I wasn't going to say that one, but then when he read it, I was like, okay, I have permission to say diaper change as well. Uh, so that's on him. Um, but here it is. At one time, Jesus was surrounded by the very angels of heaven, being worshipped in all of his glory. He was surrounded by a host of angels, and now... He's cradled in the arms of a young, poor Jewish woman. I mean, we see him in his humiliation. We, this, is, this is Philippians for us, isn't it? Being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery. He lowered himself. He brought himself down to be obedient. The form of man, to be obedient, even to the point of death. The Magi saw, worshipped, and then they gave. Got the gifts there. Gifts fit for a king. They opened their treasures. But notice, this was after they came to Jesus, after they worshipped Jesus, and then that's what led to the giving of the gifts. I think we have to get it in that order. These men were Gentiles. But they knew that there was no gifts that were going to save them. You know, it wasn't like, hey, otherwise they would have sent somebody else. Hey, send, the, send these gifts over to Jesus and then we'll be good. 
They had to come on their own. They had to worship him on their own. They had to be saved on their own. He is the savior of the world. And this is, this is for you who maybe you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you think you do. Maybe you're offering up a church attendance. Maybe you're offering up church membership. Maybe you're offering up good works, good deeds, whatever it might be. Maybe you're offering up that your family Christians or your mom was a Christian or your dad's a Christian or, or your friends with a pastor or whatever it might be. None of those things will save you. You must come to Christ on your own. You must worship him on your own. You must receive him into your life through faith in him. Receive him into your life and you'll be saved. And then you live for him. We so often get this turned around. Like, I'll clean up my life and then Jesus will accept me. That's not it at all. You come to Christ with all your sin, all your failures, all your brokenness. You let him set you free and you will be free indeed. And then you live your life for him. You surrender, surrender your ambitions, you surrender your plans, your pursuits, your wants, your sins, your desires. You let him command your life. I echo the prayer of Charles Spurgeon when reflecting on this passage. He says, Lord, send us converts like these wise men. Send us men and women in great multitudes who will cheerfully obey, who will find a delight in worshiping Christ, in paying him homage, giving to his service, and in giving themselves to him. The Magi surrendered. But Herod, we look at Herod, Herod opposed the king. He opposed him. He opposed him and rejected Jesus Christ out of two things, fear and pride. Fear and pride. And there's a little bit of context behind this because Herod was finally given, you notice it says Herod the king. He wasn't king of all of Rome. The Roman Senate allowed him to be king. He wasn't even Roman, he was an Idumean. They allowed him to be king over Judea. This guy, finally, he was given somewhere to reign and and. Uh, and and the worst thing that could happen for King Herod would be for a native man to rise up who would be king who the people would follow. Herod was fearful and suspicious overall. We know from history that Herod, I mean, if he had the slightest hint you were going to commit some form of treachery, if he came the least bit suspicious, you were dead. Killed a number in his family. Only his own wife, three of his sons, his mother-in-law, his uncle, many others, when he was just the least suspicious. Later in Matthew chapter 2, we, we didn't read it, and we're not going to touch on it this morning, but we learn how he murdered babies in order to eliminate the threat of the true king taking his place. Just the other day, I was in Psalm chapter 2 for my devotions, and we read this in Psalm chapter 2, verses 2-5. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. But here it is. Let's... Break away from Jesus. Let's get God out of my life. I don't want to be commanded by Jesus. I don't want Jesus to rule my heart, to rule anything. I don't want this, this God stuff. I don't want God to be in charge of my life. I want to be in charge of my life. It's mine. And these rulers, like King Herod, 
Herod the Great, what do I have to do to make sure this King Jesus doesn't get anywhere? And it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. This is not going to work. This isn't going to be successful. There is a king who will sit enthroned, and he will knock every earthly ruler off their throne and establish his rule. I mean, this is coming in Jerusalem, where the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven after the millennium kingdom. But Jesus was a threat to Herod's throne. Is he a threat to you? Oh, no, of course not, you would say. He's no threat to me. Jesus is a threat to anyone who won't surrender to him. You can be threatened by Jesus or you can trust in Jesus. And what the religious leaders described, Herod learned a lot that day. He learned a lot. I mean, he asked these religious leaders, hey, tell me about this. Where is this Christ to be born? Verse 5. So they told him, he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And then they quoted scripture to him. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Herod learned a lot. One, he learned that the birth of this king was prophesied hundreds of years prior. Now, wouldn't that alone, I mean, help Herod understand what's going on here? Like, man, hundreds of years ago, some prophets actually said this was going to happen. And they even, they even gave us an address. They wrote down an address to where this package was going to be delivered. I mean, I mean, you would think, like, man, this was written hundreds of years ago. And now it looks like it's coming true. He learned that it had been prophesied. He, was, he learned that a king had been born. He learned that the Magi have been miraculously guided to Jerusalem. Right? Because they came and said, we saw his star, and we've been following this miraculous star, and it's gone away from us now, we don't know where it's at, but so we figured we'd come to the, the hub of all the Jewish religion and say, hey, where is this king to be born? Man, he learned a lot. He learned a lot about who Jesus was, where Jesus came from, what he was going to do. We learned, he learned a lot about this miraculous unfolding of God's plan that he gave to the Magi. He gave a lot. He learned a lot. Yet Herod was ready to take on the divine. He was convinced he had the power to upend the plan of God. This is the folly of rejection. This is the folly of pride. This is the folly of fear. You may say, Jesus isn't a threat to me. But to come to Christ and to see him as more glorious and satisfying than anything in this world... He's more satisfying than power. I wonder how many this morning are hungering for power. He's more satisfying than influence. How many of us are hungering and thirsting for influence? He's more satisfying than position or possessions. How many of us are hungering and thirsting for more, a higher position or greater possessions? Come to Jesus means that we are so satisfied in who he is and what he has done, we gladly surrender all those things to him. We gladly submit to his will concerning our finances, our relationships, our priorities, our time, our families, our free time, all those things. 
So you should know this. As you go through scripture, Jesus is in the business of kicking people off their thrones. He did it in the Old Testament with Nebuchadnezzar. He'll do it with Herod in the New Testament. Time and time again, he's kicking people off their thrones. Herod did things his own way. He fulfilled his own desires. He was married multiple times in order to fulfill his lusts and gain more ground politically. Jesus is in the business of kicking kings off their throne. I think we just have to look, not to over-spiritualize this, but I think we have to say, what's ruling our hearts right now? What's on the throne of your heart? Or what needs to, what needs to get kicked off the throne of your heart? What plans are ruling your life your lust, your greed, your desire for more power, your desire for affirmation, your desire for control. What is ruling your heart? What does Jesus need to kick off the throne of your heart? Because that's what this baby came to do. We are reminded in these verses as well, when we read, it, when we read in verse 6, for from you shall come a ruler. We're reminded that Jesus came to rule. And all those who trust him will rule with him as well. Now this is another wonder of Christmas. Because I don't have a divine nature, and I, I don't have kingly blood in my veins. I'm not from a kingly line. There's, I have no right to any throne whatsoever. But if you've been brought in to God's family by God himself through his grace, he, I just think, God adopted me into his family. He adopted me when I was wandering in a desert, when I was wallowing in a pit of my own sin and despair. By nature, I oppose God. And then God opened my eyes to see who Jesus was. He adopted me into his family. And now, he promises me that there's a kingdom in which I will rule with Jesus Christ. There's an inheritance that I will share with this Jesus. And now I want nothing else other than to be found in Jesus Christ. I am imperfect in every area of my life. I'm mentally, emotionally, physically, I'm a sinner. But that's not all I am. Because of Jesus, not only am I a sinner, but I'm also a child of God and I'm a recipient of God's grace. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a pastor or whatever. But Jesus wants to sit enthroned on your heart. But first he has to dethrone you. My question is, are you willing to let him dethrone you? Herod opposed. The Magi surrendered. Herod opposed the king. Number three, the religious leaders ignored the king. The religious leaders ignored the king. Ignored the king. I think this is one of the, this is one of the, the saddest parts in the passage that we read. First we should note, that when it says that Herod was troubled, it says that in verse 3, all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. Like, what? Like this was, the, this was their king. This is their Messiah. What would be so troubling with the fact that Jesus was here? Their king was here. 
Well, they probably knew that there would be contention. They probably feared that because this king is here now, that, there's, that Herod the Great isn't so great, and he's not so kind, and he's not so good. And so they probably feared that there was going to be contention, and things were going to turn out for the worse. And that's the way Jesus is to some. He's troubling. He's just going to cause more trouble in my family, in my life, whatever it might be, because coming to Jesus does not make life perfect. But they ignored what they read in their Bibles. In the scrolls of the Old Testament, when Herod asked where the Messiah was to be born, they opened their Bibles right to the passage. They knew exactly where that prophecy was. They knew exactly what it included. They had read it time and time and time again. They didn't need to Google search it. Like I do, sometimes I'm like, what is that verse? Google, praise the Lord for Google, right? Because when we don't think of a verse, we just type part of it in there and it gets us right to where we need to go. Thank God for Google. They didn't need Google. They didn't need a Bible commentary. They didn't need to discuss it. Where is was, where was this king to be born? Boom, right here. Read. They knew right where to find the ancient prophecy, but they had no idea where to find Jesus. They were well-versed in ancient knowledge, but they had no interest in traveling, get this, five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It was five miles. Here it is, these, these chief priests, these religious leaders of the people who had read time and time, day after day after day after day, they read the prophets and the kings and the history of Israel day after day after day after day, but they had no interest in traveling five miles to Bethlehem to even investigate whether or not the king was truly there. No interest in traveling five miles to Bethlehem to worship the one that those very ancient words were speaking of. And here's, here's my concern with my own heart and with yours. They had the knowledge of sound doctrine, but they had no power. Paul would write to Timothy, warning the same things. Be careful. Because people are going to have an appearance of godliness, but they're going to deny its power. It's about people in the church. My concern with you is, for most of you, is probably not that you do or don't know Scripture. My concern with me isn't necessarily that I do or don't know scripture. My concern with me and with you and my prayer for myself has been, I don't want to be a hearer of the word and not a doer. I don't want to deny the very power of scripture by not having any sort of life that shows that I'm being fed by the word of God. But instead I've got, a, I've got all the knowledge, you ask me where a verse is and after I Google search on the side, I can tell you right where it's at. Man, we don't have any, where's the power? Where's the power that comes to those who rest in this book and, and in nothing else? Man, where's that in my life? Are you a religious leader? You know all about the Bible, you know all about the stories. You love doctrine. But when it comes to 
generosity. You're as tight-fisted as anyone. When it comes to visiting the needy, you've got more important things to do. When it comes to caring for the souls of men, you don't think you have the answers. When it comes to holy living, you don't think it's that big of a deal. When it comes to joy, there's just nothing. There's nothing to be found. As we close this out, my prayer would be that you would dread, you would dread a religion that is only in the Bible and has no affection for Christ in the heart. That you would dread it in your own life and you would dread it in my life, you would dread it in the life of this church. That there would only be a knowledge of the Bible and no affection for Christ in the heart. My mentor Warren Rearsby would say that the mark of a true Bible student is not a big head but a burning heart. And that's how he would say it. I want to return to that question that I asked you at the beginning. Is there darkness in you? Maybe because you're opposing Jesus? Or maybe it's because you're ignoring Jesus? The darkness of opposition, the darkness of ignoring Jesus. You who are opposing Jesus, would today be the day that you invite him to sit on the throne of your heart? You who are ignoring Jesus, which makes you just as destined for hell as someone who opposes him. But maybe even you Christians who are, you've come to Jesus by faith, he's your savior, you've been secured for all eternity, your sins are forgiven, but you're only, you're just a hearer. I'm wondering if you would come to Christ as well in repentance and quit looking on to Christ from a short distance. You who worship Jesus even now, does he get your best? Does Jesus get your best? The wise men gave the best they could possibly give. Do you give your best to him? Do you study your best? Do you pray your best because of him? Let Jesus sit enthroned in your heart. Let him be near to you and let him get your best. Let's pray. Lord, what wonderful news. Just as Corey Tinboom in the worst moments of her life would tell to that German lieutenant, that there's a light that your Bible shows us. Jesus is the light who can pierce the darkest heart and the darkest soul. Lord, I pray that darkness would be consumed by your light and we may all live for you in great worship, bringing you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.